I, w- I want to live in the city where if you are not schooled in Hitchcock lore, you can get beaten up on this street. Pain works on a sliding scale. So does pleasure in a candy jail. True love doesn't come around. Anymore. So, hello everyone. Welcome to Candy Jail, the podcast that once you enter, you can't get out from. Um, we're happy to have you here for the duration um, there is no paywall, but there is a wall, and you can't break through it anymore. So <laughs> there is know. a there's a paywall, but we're stuck on the wrong side of it too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, we're happy to have you here as co-captors, and um, today we're going to be discussing a unique film that clearly has antecedents, but nonetheless does stand on its own in many regards. Uh, as a unique cinematic experience. This is Christian Petzold's 2014 film called Phoenix. And um, let me read actually, Bremden, the blurb from the Criterion collection that explains this film before we jump into it, since we surely will have some listeners that are coming to us because they want to hear other people talk about this film that they've seen but there might be some that haven't seen it. So this is from Criterion, quote, this evocative and haunting drama set in rubble-strewn Berlin in 1945 is like no other film about post-World War II Jewish-German identity. After surviving Auschwitz, a former cabaret singer, Nina Haas, in a dazzling multi-layered performance, has her disfigured face reconstructed and returns to her war-ravaged hometown to seek out her Gentile husband and who may or may not have betrayed her to the Nazis. Without recognizing her, he enlists her to play his wife in a bizarre hall of shattered mirrors story that is as richly metaphorical as it is preposterously engrossing. Revenge film or tale of romantic reconciliation? One doesn't know until the superb closing scene of this marvel from Christian Petzold, one of the most important figures in contemporary German cinema. So I thought um, just to make this as simple as possible, why don't we just discuss general takeaways, general impressions of the film? What, uh, What was your feeling upon finishing the movie, Brendan? conflicted feelings i think um i struggled a little bit at times with the improbability of the plot and i am not right now leveling that as a criticism of the movie i'm saying it was something that i found myself struggling with in a way that i don't know is fair or not um this movie is in some ways a noir visually and in terms of some of the plot devices it is a noirish film and in in noir we're not looking for um realistic plots i don't even like that that word really when it's applied to storytelling um but there is at the heart of phoenix there is this idea that she the main character nelly she had facial reconstructive surgery, which left her looking different than she had before. 
but not necessarily radically different than she had before. And so there are times in the movie when people recognize her for who she is. And there are times in the movie that people do not recognize her. And I found that I was sometimes, I think, I felt like the movie was sometimes asking me to suspend my disbelief about that in order to reach the emotional truth of the scene. And I was struggling with doing that. But I don't know. I don't, I'm not ready to say that that's a flaw in the movie. And if, if there was a flaw in the movie, that would be it. I would say that and nothing else because it's superbly well acted and beautifully photographed. And it is um, completely unpredictable from beginning to end the, the opening scene where um, Nellie's friend is driving her pre-surgery. She's her face is covered in bandages. A bullet has plowed through her cheekbone. Um, they are harassed by presumably bored U.S. servicemen at a at a border checkpoint, and you you just have no idea where the film is going from that moment until what is rightly regarded, from what I've read, as a as a, a absolutely classic ending. What about you, man? You brought this to me. I think you were pretty excited to share this one. Yeah. Um... Well, just to respond in brief to one of your comments, I do think that the film demands that the viewer suspend their disbelief with the rules of the game that it's created. And if for whatever reason, I don't think, I think you were, you were nice in how you framed it, which is it's not automatically the director's fault per se, but certainly if you find yourself in a position such that you can't suspend disbelief based on the rules that the film has established, you're going to have a rough go of it. Um, and so it makes sense why you struggled with the film. I did not struggle with it. I was able to uh, accommodate the conceit um, in a way that did not impede upon just getting lost in the film. So I think anytime you have a situation where you're aware of the fact that you're watching a movie, uh, unless it's an avant-garde, breaking the fourth wall, experimental film, which I might argue those films also suck in their own ways. Um, yeah, it's just going to be hard. It's going to be hard to like anything that, that uh, you can't lose yourself. If you can't lose yourself in the film, in a work of art, and you're constantly aware of the fact that you're watching a movie, it's going to, it's going to diminish your enjoyment. So, okay. The film was brought to my attention from, uh, our possibly non-existent referenced person, Zachariah Phillips, big time cinephile, I would argue he's generally got very good taste in movies and he certainly has uh, developed and honed an ability to look at films critically. So when Zachariah makes a suggestion, especially one that's emphatic, I'm inclined to pay attention. And this was one that he emphatically demanded I watch again and again and again until finally he visited. So unless I am Tyler Durden, and Zach is my schizophrenic hallucination. We sat and watched the film together, and then I watched it a second time uh, with you a couple weeks ago. 
So I was primed to like the film because I hold my friend's taste in high regard. But uh, that doesn't mean there haven't been films that he's recommended that I understand why they're good, but I can't get with them the way that he can. For instance, I hope I don't get myself in trouble here. This, there was like a three-hour film called Hard to Be a God. I don't know if you've heard about this movie. The filmmaker took more or less his entire career to make it. He died before it was finished. It's an incredible like world-building film. I understand why it's an achievement. I don't want to watch it again. He wants to watch it again. So, okay, with that being said, I was immediately drawn into the story. I was immediately emotionally connected to Nelly. And I found the psychology and maybe the psychological truths that the film was trying to reveal to be at uh, to be consistently on point and at certain moments genuinely profound and uh, cathartic to boot. I found it never sort of got sidetracked into a. It could have gotten sidetracked into a kind of Hitchcockian um, hyper logical analytical mode at the expense of feeling, I think it always struck a pretty wonderful balance and maybe more often than not leaned more in the direction of feeling than logic, uh, back to your conceit issue. And maybe I was primed for that. Um, maybe my person, I don't know, it's hard to say, right? Why, why we respond to certain things and other people don't. But if, if you agree with my, my general thesis here that uh, Petzold was uh, willing to explore feeling and lean into that more than some of the sort of psychological thrillery uh, contours of like a Hitchcock film with Vertigo being an obvious inspirational uh, film that he's riffing off of. I think it was the right choice uh, for the for the subject matter of this film. So in a nutshell, that's that's what I liked about this movie. Let me ask you this. This is just occurring to me right now. Suppose that there is a version of this movie where everything is exactly the same, but she doesn't have surgery. Because the surgery on some level is, a, um, I think, meant as a metaphor for how she's changed because of the unspeakable things she's endured. So suppose she comes back from the camps and she has not had her face has not changed and some people recognize her and some people don't recognize her but it becomes then entirely psychological because like in johnny's mind his wife is dead but also he did not betray his wife but she's dead he's moved on um he's created his own sort of fictional version of of what happened in the past so when he sees his dead wife living and breathing in front of her his brain can't take him any further than you know. You kind of look like my dead wife. Do you want to you know? Do you want to be part of this scheme with me? Do you think the movie would still work without the surgery? That's an interesting question. I think that it could. Um, maybe that was if the conceit is already impossible. Like we have to on in many regards, even with the facial reconstruction 
um, be charitable to the director with what he's asking us to do in terms of plausibility with, with the situations that unfold with, with Lenny in spite of uh, Nelly, excuse me, in spite of uh, the reconstructive surgery, because remember when she's given options from the German doctor, the surgeon says, you know, do you want to look like, you know, fill in the blank, famous German actress. And she says, no, I want to look like how I looked. And he said, are you sure? Yada, yada. I think that that's all there to, to in Petzold's mind. I don't know. It'd be interesting to actually see if he went on record about his thinking with this, but it sounds like she, he, the, the surgeon did a pretty good job as evidenced uh, by different interactions uh, later in the film, certainly with the hotel uh, groundskeeper that recognizes Nellie immediately. So we know that whatever, however she looked prior to the surgery, um, she looked pretty close to how she looked from a non-Johnny observer, but she looks different enough that there's a certain amount of plausible deniability uh, on the side of any character that might play confused regarding who they're bearing witness to. And in this case, obviously, the most important character in that regard is her ex-husband, Johnny. So I would say, yes, it could still work, but I think it, it makes sense to just offset it enough that we then are given a little bit more realism injected into the surrealism of this implausible scenario, if that makes sense. It does. I think I may see it a little bit differently, though. I, and again, I'm literally just thinking about this for the first time. But uh, you already brought up Vertigo. That is the obvious, probably first comparison point for this movie, because it is, um, as you said, obviously, that was a, there are many, many, many deliberate nods to Vertigo. When was the last time you watched Vertigo? Two nights ago. Okay, I, so I watched it in preparation for this. Awesome. Okay, so I'm. It's pretty familiar to me, but if I get this wrong, you've it's fresher in your mind. So correct me. But early in the film, as the mystery is unraveling, Scotty, the Jimmy Stewart character, is following this woman that he's been told to follow. She goes into a hotel, a little bed and breakfast style hotel. He sees her at an upper window. And then he goes inside and she's gone. And the woman at the front desk says, no, like nobody came in here. Nobody's upstairs and there's no back door to this house. Right. That's that's is that a fair outline of how that plays out? Yeah. Yes. And so then we get. So, OK, so then, you know, the the mystery has been heightened and then the movie plays out and it's sort of like one revelation after another. And you get to the end of the movie and it all clicks into place except for that part you realize there's no explanation for that part at all. And yet somehow, at least to me, it doesn't matter because it's as though the movie just said, hey, we're going to ask you to um, accept a little bit of magic here and you're just going to go with it. Whereas Phoenix, I feel like had the surgery not been a part of it at all, I would have been completely on board with what was happening. Hmm. And had the surgery been used as a literal plot device more rigorously, I would have gone completely along with what's happening. It, it's almost like the, 
the Petzold needed to take the Hitchcock step and just be like magic. Um, and because it didn't quite embrace the magic all the way, maybe is it, it didn't work quite as strongly for me, even though it makes more sense on some level than Hitchcock's impossible scene. Yeah, I think I have thoughts on the Hitchcock comparison and, and, I think there's more to be mined with that, right? But let's just pause for a second there and return to uh, what's happening with the surgery. And I'll I'll double down and try to defend why I think it was a smart move. The the themes being explored in this film, and I I, I wrote to you about this in our we we have uh, to listeners an informal writing exchange that we we do to prepare ourselves and just to hear each other's thoughts or to read each other's thoughts. So in my response to you, man, I wrote, um, I think I do have a, a, a very high bar for fictional films dealing with the Nazi Holocaust because of the fact there is a veritable mountain of actual primary source material to draw from should one decide to educate themselves about this uh, topic. And for that reason, there's a part of me that's, you know, I've heard science fiction, anti-sci-fi people make this statement, um, or anti-fantasy fiction people make this statement. I think it's unfair, but I kind of get it, where they're like, like real life and things that have happened to real people are crazy enough. And there's so many stories out there that have yet to be told. Why do you need to make something up out of thin air in order to uh, tell a story when there's a billion incredible stories that are truly so crazy, they're hard to believe, but they actually happened. And I think that there's a, a logic to that argument that I can follow up into a certain point, but here's back to why um, I say high bar, but not I'm resistant completely to fictional renditions of Nazi Holocaust uh, related films. There's some things that you can't get at through nonfiction. And you wind up in these paradoxes that I think some of our most beloved authors have explicitly referenced in their own work, fiction writers, right, that say, almost as a as an af- as a uh, imperative or as a north star by which to make sense of what they're doing to themselves that you sometimes need to enter into the realm of fiction in order to arrive at deep truths and you sometimes need to engage in certain forms of we could say exaggeration certain forms of distortion in order to highlight or illustrate something that can't quite be gotten at as paradoxical as it sounds by playing it straight. And I think this is an example of that would be my, that would be my bar, right? That's my measuring rod. Like what is your justification for engaging in fiction with a topic that has so much documentary material? You better have a good fucking answer. Uh, And it better be one that is not pretentious, but coherent. And I think that the, takeaway I had from this film, man, and why I'm I'm still doubling down with both the conceit and the surgery piece is it's dealing with the same themes that the documentary material is, of course. It's dealing with grief. It's dealing with ego death. It's dealing with psychic and bodily disfiguration. It's dealing with um, 
just a general displacement and disorientation from loss of identity on nearly every level, betrayal, all this stuff, right? Courage, cowardice, and piecing yourself back together once the dust settles and you've survived a catastrophe. And I think what this film has accomplished or what this film did for me that, that no number of documentaries have pulled off in my mind, which again, it's like, it's not about knocking a film like Claude Lonsman's Shoah. That exists for good reason and it's incredible for what it does. And it, and it touches on everything I just mentioned, but it doesn't show you what it's like for a person to piece themselves back together after catastrophe of this magnitude. And for that reason, I could hear testimony until the ends of time. And I don't mean that to diminish or to discredit the uh, bravery and the historical importance uh, of people going on the record to share that stuff. But it's different, right? Than actually being able to watch a character work through this in real time. And that's where the fiction comes in. And that's where I'm like, okay, he is showing me something that I've heard about. People have told me about, but now I'm watching it as if someone's really trying to work through it. And there's something about that that I found profound uh, and unique uh, and novel to this, to this film. And therefore, it met my standard of, what's your fucking justification? Okay, this is a good justification. I think you have a coherent... Um, defense as to why you've made this film. I, I think that's a persuasive argument. I, I'm not going to withdraw my potential criticism, but I'm not going to double down on it either because I think you make a really good point. Um, and I, I think that the, I mean, ev everything in this movie, as in a, any well done story, I think comes down to the end, right? So let's just walk through that ending a second. So Nellie is Nellie, but she's pretending to be a woman named Esther in the presence of her husband. And her husband believes, or is pretending to believe, that she is not Nellie, she is Esther. She is Esther who looks enough like Nellie that she can pretend to be Nellie in front of their old non-Jewish friends that they used to hang out with in the artsy circles in Berlin before... Nellie was taken away to a camp. And Nellie was a singer. Johnny was her accompanist. They sit down in front of these friends who believe they have just seen Nellie get off a train fresh, I guess, from being repatriated from a camp. And they go to this uh, uh, hotel they all used to hang out in. And Johnny professes his undying love for Nellie. He sits down, begins to play at her instigation the song Speak Low. And as she sings, it becomes increasingly obvious to Johnny that she is really his wife, Nellie, whom he betrayed to the Nazis. And that revelation is culminated in the moment when she pulls her sleeve up to reveal the concentration camp tattoo, right? She finishes the song to dead silence. Johnny has stopped playing the piano. Nellie walks out of the building and presumably into the rest of her life. So there's a lot there. But first of all, I think from what you've said before, 
that you regard that as a fundamentally, I guess, hopeful ending in keeping with the Phoenix, the title of the movie. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I think yes. Okay. So I agree that it can be read that way. I also think you can read it as completely the opposite and that it still works either way. And that might be the strongest argument I can make in favor of the movie is that the what I read as the ambiguity of the ending is the perfect a perfectly true note with which to end any kind of examination of the Holocaust. So the other way that I think you can read the ending is that Nellie has spent the whole movie passing, passing for a non-Jew, passing for someone who is not discriminated against. She even protests to her friend at one point, I'm not Jewish, presumably because she didn't know that about herself or she'd been in denial for a long time. There's a throwaway, well, not a throwaway, but there's a, a passing line in the movie where it sounds like she was in London and then she came back to Germany in 1938 which would be a very, very strange thing, a very, very strange time for a Jew to return to Germany, right? It was... it. Yeah, just to jump in just quickly, though, because I've read enough on this topic that I want to I wanna show off a little. No, but I want to actually contextualize this and, and give it some historical foundation. So, you know, Theodore Adorno, one of the most famous continental philosophers of the Frankfurt School who did escape to New York with other uh, colleagues. And most famously, he was on very intimate friendship terms with uh, the great Walter Benjamin, who never made it out. All these guys were Jewish, right? Adorno, Marcuse is another big one who wound up being, uh, on many levels, the most uh, prominent leftist activist of the bunch. She was the only one that I think maybe not the only one, but one of the most notable figures to put his feet both in academia and in activism in ways that Adorno and others were sometimes criticized for not being willing to, right? That aside, you'd be shocked, Brendan, at what I read regarding the resistance of people like Adorno in leaving Germany. Like they literally had to be dragged out of Germany late, in the game when it was obvious like it's not just the writings on the wall like the blood is on in the streets man like you're gonna get fucking killed like and they're all screen not they're all saying because they're fully assimilated and from what i've read with jewish um history as it's tied to germany um this was a 19th century phenomenon they received they were in a golden era from around 18 i think it was 1870 to about maybe you could say 19 Weimar, essentially, where you could be a doctor, you could be just about anything aside from maybe uh, holding high political office or certain aristocratic positions, right? But generally, every, every field was open to Jews, and many of them uh, gladly assimilated themselves, changed their names, were baptized, uh, completely had shorn themselves of any vestiges of Jewish identity as, as most would understand it, right? And so to, to realize when you read about this, right, even um, uh, Hannah Arendt was in a similar boat. She didn't identify as Jewish until she was identified as Jewish. 
And I think even once they were exiled in the United States, uh, Arant was a little different because she made that sort of a central facet of much of her subsequent philosophy. I think Adorno probably went to his grave being like, these fucking morons, you know, like on some level, I'm not Jewish. I'm German before I'm Jewish. Well, in comes the Nazi regime. And in that particular moment, they're going to remind all the Jews who think they're Germans what their primary identity is. And so it's not that unrealistic when you look at like the actual historical examples of people who did make it out, but had to literally be dragged out. They were in such denial about, um, the danger they were in. Yeah, I, no, I don't think it's unrealistic at all. I think that denial there is the key word, that that suggests that she was in denial about some aspect of her Jewishness um, before. The, in the same way that Adorno right. was and remained, right, in some right. regards. Mm-hmm. And so then she she survives, and then she's continually in her quest to find Johnny, her husband, um, her refusal to believe that Johnny betrayed her and her family to the Gestapo. Um, her, I mean, at one point she even she's trying to find Johnny. She tracks down a guy named Johnny, and she then basically witnesses this other Johnny rape a woman in an alley, and then she just waits until the rape is over, and then when the guy comes out, she's like Johnny, like she's she's even in denial about what is right in front of her. Like she just saw the, a man that she thinks is her husband rape a woman. And she's like, yeah, let me just wait until the rape is done. And then I'll reintroduce myself to him and we'll ride off happily into the sunset. So she's basically in a state of denial up until the very end of the movie. And what she's trying to do is pass. You could argue. Right. And, in the final scene, who is she in front of? She's in front of these non-Jewish artistic types uh, who presumably have survived everything unscathed, right? And, and welcome her back into the fold as though none of that ever happened. Just forget about the last five years, you know? And then her non-Jewish husband, who betrayed her to the Nazis, and what do they finally realize about her? They see the concentration camp number on her arm. Her identity as a Jew is reasserted, and that results in her voluntary segregation from the group that had just accepted her. If you read it that way, it's an incredibly bleak ending, and I think equally as well-earned as the argument that you can also make that it is a more hopeful ending. Yeah. And I feel like in a way, right, what you've helped me land on too is, and this isn't to knock your dichotomy, like, is it hopeful or is it, is it gloomy? Maybe those are the wrong questions. Um, because I think of like, um, let's go over to the matrix, which I think borrowed this. I don't remember which Western philosopher, ancient Greek philosopher, likely, uh, made some version of this statement, right? Maybe actually, no, this is this is Plato's allegory of the cave, which is very, I mean, the matrix in many ways is a riff off Plato's allegory. The guy that gets out is confronted by reality. And it's extremely disturbing in many on many levels. Like, yeah, there's sunlight and that feels good. But from what I remember, it was actually fairly rough to acclimate to what was actually going on. 
And then he goes down and no one believes him. And obviously that must have brought psychic agony for the messenger, right? The one who got out. But if we, if we then relate that, right, to the notion of truth and denial and basically saying, like, if you're in denial, if you're telling yourself a lie, whether it be a, a lie that you're completely unaware of or a lie that you're dimly aware you're telling yourself but unwilling psychologically to accept I'm lying to myself, right? You're not confronting the truth. So then you get into these, uh, these platitudes like the truth shall set you free. There's obviously immense freedom that comes from the truth because how is any freedom ever possible if you're locked into a, a denialism? But nothing about that says happy. Nothing about that says you're going to be okay. Nothing about that says your life is going to be wonderful. And I think you're right to um, at least pause and go, what does Nellie's life look like after she's walked out of that door? I don't feel any sense of certainty that she's going to be okay, right, in, uh, in the grand scheme. I don't know if she's going to recover or find a new life or have a new chapter that, that works for her. But I do know that she has disenchanted herself in the positive sense in a way that those other characters have failed to do. And in that regard, she's free in a way that they're not. It doesn't mean she's happy. It means she's worked her way out of something that they've failed to. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. But it also makes me wonder about just the continuing impossibility of her situation, which is something that I think many survivors have written about. Certainly, Jean-Amélie wrote about it. I think Primo Levi wrote about it. Um, Both of which committed suicide, which I think is notable. Yes, yes. I And... Amélie was another one of those guys who did not in any way identify as Jewish until the German government and the German people forced him to identify as Jewish. And just it's an it's it's an impossible thing to reconcile yourself to that such a thing happened, right? Um Nelly may be walking out of that room I guess with the blinders off, having seen the truth that no one else was courageous enough to see, but that doesn't mean that it will allow her to move forward into a better life. I mean, it might, you know, I mean, it, it, it's not to say that everyone who survived the Holocaust lived in confusion and existential despair and killed themselves. That would be far from the truth. But I don't know that the movie necessarily provides us enough information to to be confident that Nellie won't go that path. And it's interesting, isn't it? Like I I I hope I'm not doing this film a disservice by tying it back to the Matrix again, but think of um I think it was Cypher who winds up betraying Morpheus with Agent Smith. And he's in the Matrix eating that steak that's clearly not real, but he's like, I think it's real because this is some convincing shit. And reality is so unpleasant, throw me back in here and just wipe my memory clean so I don't know the difference and I'll take it, give it to me. There's no doubt, right, that there's, um, there's, there are pros, you could put it in quotes. There are things to be gained from maintaining, uh, from lying to oneself, from living an illusion, from maintaining one's ignorance. 
and there are things to be lost by uh, working your way out of that. And so I'm with you that like it has nothing to do with positive life outcome in some sense, but I think I have to side with tell me the truth. I want to know. I don't want to be lied to. And uh, if the situation is irreconcilable, I guess we're in another paradox where a character like Nellie or real people that go through all number of uh, unfathomable suffering and survive um, have to live with reconciling with the irreconcilable. Like somehow you have to wear the irreconcilable around your waist on your shoulders and not let it hopefully eat you alive, but also not um, enter into yet another lie thinking you can smooth it out. There must be, uh, I I don't know, right? Because I don't know uh, what it's like to grapple with experiences of this traumas of this magnitude, but I, I'm attracted to that idea of I'm not going to think my way or feel my way or therapize my way through this trauma, but that doesn't mean I'm uh, lost forever, but it does mean that um, this is something that just has to coexist with me. I think Amari was, excuse me, that was like a weird, it was like my fucked up version of trying to do a French accent and it came out sounding Spanish. So Amari I think speaks to this fairly explicitly um, that there is no smoothing this out. And in fact, um, honoring the experience in many ways demands not smoothing it out. Um, But what that means for other people that aren't um, literary talents like Amari, who turn this jaggedness into the thing he needs to write about, I don't know. I don't know how that's dealt with um, when you're not trying to do something artistic or creative with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I I wonder, too, about the title. So Phoenix obviously can be read as referring to Nelly, who you know rises almost literally from ashes and presumably is reborn at the end of the film, but it's also the name of the nightclub in the film where Nellie finds Johnny working. Is there any significance to that? Is there a double meaning to that name here because of its association with the nightclub? Or is it simply a nice poetic echo? I'd have to sit with that for a little bit longer. I'd, I think there probably is more going on there than just a poetic echo. I'm starting to think of the very thing you need to get away from as also the thing that saves you. And um, in this case, she needed to get away from the literal club Phoenix in order to actually be the Phoenix that gets out. But I also, you know, you, 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 can, you can tackle this from other angles. Like, let's think of it this way. If the Third Reich had never seized hold of Germany, right? and we'd had no Holocaust, there would have been no reason for Johnny to hide Nelly. There would have been no inciting incident such as this, right? Where his, his um, what would you call it? Loyalty or his betrayal would have been tested in quite this way. But it did happen. And he did do what he did. He betrayed her. 
that reveals almost all we need to know about him. It cuts right to the core of his character. Had this not occurred, and it's like, who the hell would ever wish this to occur? But this is the case for us right now, right? With our partners and friends today. Very rarely are we confronted with scenarios that are so extreme that you're going to wind up making decisions that reveal something uh, extremely, extremely hard to access, either good or bad. And so another paradox that I'm thinking as we're teasing this out is if this was the experience necessary to expose who Johnny really was, she could have gone her whole life not really knowing who she was in bed next to. And uh, this nightmare, for all of its nightmarishness, did give her that. This is well, who this is. And there's another element of that, too, which is, would it have mattered? That is, had it not, had all that stuff not happened, she might never have known who she was in bed with because... No, no extreme circumstance ever would have brought out that side of his character. And then would it have mattered in any way? In other words, I guess how many of us are Johnny or how many Definitely. of us are in bed with Johnny? We just don't know it because that set of circumstances hasn't happened. Definitely. And I think even, even if we pull back, right. And say um, without a cataclysmic situation uh, that we're confronted with, we do kind of catch little glimpses of this in other people and in ourselves uh, in, at times that can be very uncomfortable and very disquieting. I mean, it, I think it's, it's an unfortunate truth, although I don't want to make a blanket statement for all of humanity, but I do think there is a kind of truth in all of us having the experience of being betrayed um, paradoxically by those that we are closest to. And I don't think that means the closer you get to someone, the more likely you are to betray them. Not, not that kind of chain of logic, but more like humans are humans. And yeah, they do do things to preserve themselves at varying levels whether it's their status, their reputation, or in the extreme cases, their very uh, existences, their bodily existence. And what we'll do to preserve that is uh, not always flattering. So we've talked about the idea of, of everyone in this movie being in denial, but there is one person who is never in denial, and that's um, Nellie's friend, Lena, who is the one who is there with her from the beginning of the movie, drives her across the border, takes her to the doctor, gets her, you know, nurses her back to health. And she is the one who always and completely tells Nellie the truth. Your family is dead. You are Jewish. You survived because they shot you in the head and they thought you were dead, but you weren't. Your husband betrayed you. And they're setting up a new state for Jews in Palestine, and my plan is to go live there, right? She seems to see this situation clearly at all times, and yet she kills herself. And I guess that, if nothing else, highlights the degree to which denial so often is a literal survival mechanism. And what does it say about those who are 
doomed to actually see things the way they are. Well, and let's get a little further here. Scratch that a little more. So why does she kill herself in your mind? I think that she kills herself and I'm if I'm failing to remember something in the note, she need, she leaves a note behind for Nellie. If I'm failing to remember an important detail in that, I apologize. But I think she kills herself because she simply cannot reconcile herself to trying to live with an expectation of hope in a world that has proven itself to be the kind of world that she now knows it to be. Yeah, I I think that that's a piece of it. I would add to that that her denial is that her vision for a, a new life in Palestine involves Nellie. And she was in denial over the power of love, however fucked up in its details, will magnetize um, people to to their uh, predator to their oppressors. In the case of Nellie, it's Johnny, or those who betray them. And so, when she realizes she will not be going to Palestine with Nellie, I read it as a denial that that it was possible without her, or even maybe that it was possible, period. Maybe she was lying to herself about actually being able to renounce her German identity completely. There's that earlier scene when she says, I can't, I can't stand to listen to this German music. Maybe one day I will be able to again. And that's why they're listening to Speak Low, because it's in English. She's so disgusted with everything German. And in spite of that, right, we, I read the suicide in part as like, even though she is rightly, and I think you're right, soberly uh, assessing reality, she has, she, she discovered the painful truth that the irreconcilability of ever living in Germany again, or even being able to relate to oneself as having German identity is so existentially painful that she couldn't she couldn't actually uh, bridge that gap and physically bring herself to move to Palestine. So I think there actually is a denial going on there, but it's subtler, and you have to you have to fill in some blanks a little bit more uh, than with Nelly and Johnny. That's fair. Um, I don't know. You know, that's just me giving you my take on. Le- is it Lena? As uh, I pronounce it, I would have said Lena, but I. Lena, you, no. you think you're the, I, I, you're the pronouncer guy? You need to I, help me. I, I sound like I haven't seen the movie. Uh, I watched I'm an the American, movie. <laughs> one of the roughs, a cosmos. I contain multitudes. We, we we just spent a week in Mexico, and I think we firmly established that your Spanish is better than mine. So, um, I'm just saying, like I, I'm I'm less. Uh, I'd be less willing to die on the hill of my interpretation of Lena's hangups right. than Nellie's and Johnny's and their friends. So um, you had brought up towards the beginning of our discussion the obvious debt that this film owes to Hitchcock's Vertigo and in many regards riffs off of, even though it winds up being quite a different film. 
Um, they're, they're, they're very, very different. Um, but there are obvious commonalities. The biggest one being, what was the name of the, not the actress. I know the actress was Kim Novak, but the name of the character in Madeline. 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 Okay. Madeline. Okay. So in Vertigo, okay. Scotty, before realizing that he's the one that's been duped, goes through this whole process of remaking who he thinks to be just an unbelievably uh, surreal doppelganger of sorts of Madeline, who in fact did not exist in that she was made up by the, what was the iron, uh, the husband of the iron magnate in order to cash in on the death of his wife. So Scotty doesn't know any of that. So in the, in the latter half of the film, once he gets over his catatonic grief over his perceived loss of uh, this woman who he wound up falling in love with, he attempts to then make her over in the image of Madeline as he remembers her without knowing that it is, in fact, the same person. So there's obviously the biggest um, interfilm crossover, right? But let's let before we get into that, if we even want to, let's get into your uh, earlier point regarding the scene that uh, at the beginning or in the in the first half of the film, Scotty has been given the assignment by what was the guy? I, I don't know any of these people's names. His 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 uh, his buddy who it doesn't matter what his he went name to college is, with that's yeah. setting him up, and uh, he follows Madeline at this point who he believes to be Madeline, to that hotel, the bed and breakfast. He sees her, but then, as you pointed out, when he goes in, she's nowhere. And you're going, this this on a, a, really is, is a supernatural element in the film, where other elements are ultimately explained by a very uh, intricate, but nonetheless uh, grounded in reality plot twists. So... What what did you make of Hitchcock's decision to include that? Like, what is even the point in your mind of letting that coexist with the other stuff? I think it has at least two points, and I, I suppose I should clarify: you can explain away the the situation. I think by postulating that the woman at the front desk of the hotel is in the employ of. Scotty's friend, and she's been paid off, so the whole thing has been staged for her to lie. I, so I don't, I don't remember there being anything in the film that specifically precludes that as being a possible answer. But I, I think it serves two purposes. One is its misdirection for us, because at that point in the movie, we're invested in this whole story of Carlotta and the woman in the painting and the idea that this woman, Madeline, may believe herself to be like the reincarnation of Carlotta, right? She does her hair the same way. She sits in the museum and stares at the painting. And so Hitchcock is is misdirecting us into believing that this is going to be a certain kind of movie so that we are blindsided by what comes next. But I think it serves that purpose in the film for the character of Scotty as well, because Scotty needs to, his defenses need to be down in order to walk into the trap that he's about to walk into. And what better way to get somebody's defenses down than to have them experience something that they cannot explain, 
right? I think that's why it's in there. And but you know, there, there's and I, I should really verify this before I repeat it on a podcast. So let me be very careful about that. Um, I have seen all three of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, but not in a I'm long sorry. time. I'm sorry, bro. So am I. But I'm t- I've not rewatched any of them in a long time. But I'm told by the internet that there's a scene in I think it's The Dark Knight where there's a car chase and they go into a tunnel and it's broad daylight when they go into the tunnel and they race through the tunnel for 17 seconds or something and they come out the other side and it's nighttime and the the art it's often presented as like christopher nolan is such a great film magician that you don't even notice and i will accept that if that is true that i did not notice but it's the kind of thing where after the fact I find out about it and I'm like, yes, this is this is one of the many cards that I can remove from this house of cards to get the whole thing to come collapsing down. With Vertigo, I don't see that, that impossible scene the same way, if that makes sense. It does. I think the only counter argument I would make, and this is from a newbie, because it's obvious from, I mean, I have seen the film before. I had seen it before going to film school, but, and, and so, and I know the cult surrounding both Hitchcock, but really this movie uh, being one of the big ones that is just so, such a classic that people are obsessed with. In the logic of the film, so I, so I just, I don't want to get like beaten up in the street for not being as uh, schooled in Hitchcock lore as some. In the movie, right, we do get the scene of, I can't remember the, the actual name of Madeline, the woman that's playing at the wife, when she runs into the, into the uh, Spanish church and uh, presumably kills herself from Scotty's perspective, we do get the reveal later on that she's uh, manhandled by the husband, and then he throws the body of his actual wife uh, down the bell tower onto the roof. That reveal, right? It would make more sense than to provide a reveal for the hotel. And the fact that Hitchcock doesn't doesn't make your um, theory untenable i actually once you floated it out i was like okay yeah that could work she could just duck out uh hide in the attic of the hotel and it's part of the husband's ploy to make scotty feel like he's going crazy or to buy into the supernatural elements of the situation but the fact that that we do get the reveal in the church tower and we don't with the hotel i think does does i I could see an argument being made that there's a there's a inconsistency then in how Hitchcock was dealing with the magic tricks of the film. If that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm second guessing myself now because I feel like there is something in the film that prohibits my explanation from being um, actually tenable, but I I could be misremembering, but I I don't know that it affects either of our arguments either way, really. Um, well, and I might have got us off into the weeds here with asking these granular questions about a film that's really not on the agenda today. And so let me try to link it back up with a more solid connection to um, Phoenix. My question is, there's obviously a connection between the character of Madeline in Vertigo and what's happening there with Scotty. 
and the character of Nellie and what's happening there with Johnny and their relationship. And this is an obvious, overt and explicit nod to Vertigo. But that could still be superficial, right? You could still say, okay, but beyond that, beyond that general sort of character dynamic that's playing out here where one is remaking another um, with certain variables change, but fundamentally you have the same situation playing out in many regards. That could still be more or less a superficial connection if that's where it starts and stops. Do you see any argument to be made that there's more happening between those two films than just the simple game that's being played here between characters? Well, I don't know if this is more, but the obsessiveness. Like, it, it it's not simply a matter of each film dealing with someone playing with identity or having their identity played with. It's that it's obsessive in both cases. After Scotty finds Kim Novak again, he obsessively tries to remake her into Madeline more and more extremely. So, you know, first she is willing to go along with a little bit of it and then he just pushes and pushes and pushes until finally the hair has to be exactly right the dress the makeup the the dinner table um you know culminating in the trip to the mission and it's absolutely obsessive on his part he's he's monomaniacal by the end of the film and in phoenix it's nelly who is obsessive like it it is Johnny who originally comes up with the scheme, but then he pretty quickly decides it's impractical and he wants to back out. And she begs with him, like, please let me pretend. Let me pretend to be myself, right? And she is obsessive about it. So I feel like that is where the parallel really becomes obvious, is in that 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 obsessive fixation on assuming an identity that is simultaneously the actual identity you already had. This is good. So let's, I think you've actually helped me solidify that there is more than a superficial connection. So let me take us back to Vertigo. I don't know if you remember the final scene, literally the final scene, he's back up at the mission and he's confronting her because she uh, reveals uh, inadvertently that she was in on the job by keeping that necklace that Madeline owned that was given to her by the husband. So he attacks her and is like, you piece of shit. You know, you think I was too dumb to understand this. You got too greedy by keeping the necklace and you know what you fucking put me through. Yada, yada. She's crying. She's despondent. And then in her panic despondency, she actually does confess, which we learn earlier on as she's writing a note, uh, deciding whether or not to meet Scotty for the first time as her actual self saying, I actually fell in love with you. So there's, you know, it's like this delicious mess where she's not who she purported to be, who she played herself off as, but she nonetheless fell in love with this man, even though it was her job to deceive him. Now he has been disillusioned and realizes the deception. She then confesses, I actually fell in love with you. And they have a final embrace and kiss that's passionate as real, the real not Madeline and Scotty being Scotty. Then the nun emerges, and I actually don't know what the uh, psychology was there. Um, and it's okay. It's not like it's a, 
what would you call it? A flaw in the film. It's just it's it's left ambiguous why she throws herself from the tower. I think she thinks it's the ghost of the murdered wife. Wow. Okay. As opposed, I thought it could have been like a like a Christian guilt thing. Like she saw a nun and jumped out of the tower. But that's, um, that's as. As a as a recovered guilty Christian, I can vouch for the fact that literally anything could be a Christian guilt thing also. That would be a good band name, by the way, the Guilty Christians. Anyway, okay. So that aside, why she throws herself out, um, there is a moment of genuine reconciliation, and he then realizes he is, in fact, still in love with whoever this woman is. That's how I read it. And before they could then consummate that love for the first time, completely unadorned of bullshit and deception, she throws herself off the tower and it's, it's over. With Nellie, when Johnny realizes, finally, there's no more room to be in denial. This is his wife. Here's my counterfactual that I want to ask you. The what if of both films. What if there had actually been then a conversation where Johnny was like, I fucking betrayed you. And even the scheme is, um, is undoubtedly revealing to both you and myself, how big of a piece of shit I am. And I'm ready to own that and all of its shittiness and do whatever it is I need to do to earn your not trust. Cause that's probably permanently damaged. But if you still do love me, However fucked up this is, um, I'm here and I'm not after your money. You keep your money. But if you want me around, I'll, I don't know what the situation would have been, but both films end with the impossibility of the connection surviving. In Vertigo, it's done with a physical, like this person just killed themselves. So that, that's, a, that's a natural terminus point. with. Nelly, it's just psychological. She could have, they could have, I suppose, however twisted it might have been, tried to make that work once all the deception was on the table and, and exposed. Um, how do you, could that have played out? Would that have been interesting? Why do both films end with separation? Well, I have, two, I have two answers to that question for Phoenix. My first answer is that the movie does flirt with that because when they're riding around on the bicycle one day, Nellie proposes to Johnny a hypothetical situation in which his betrayal was more or less accidental. And he does not even respond, right? And he could have seized on that. And because she's basically saying, hey, look, I'm offering you a way out of this. And he could have seized on it. And then they could have moved forward with that narrative that on in both of their hearts, they would have known that that narrative was false. But it might have been enough for them to build up some kind of life going forward on. Right. My second answer is this gets into forgiveness of oppressors forgiveness of people who commit genocide forgiveness of nazis um which is a deeply personal choice as far as i can see i need to silence my notifications here i don't think i don't know how audible they are but 
and that's that that's a different movie, right? And it's a it's a there's a scene in this is a random reference, but it just popped into my head. The HBO miniseries Band of Brothers about um Easy Company and the European theater and the Second World War. Each episode opens with an interview, an excerpt of an interview with one of the actual veterans who's being portrayed by an actor in the movie. And one of them is Dick Winters, um, who is asked the question, basically, when you're about to jump out of the plane to go into battle for the first time, how do you prepare yourself? And he says, he just shakes his head dismissively. He said, he obviously has no interest in answering the question. He says, each man must do that for himself. And that's all he has to say about that huge, huge question. And that's kind of when I imagine like, putting myself in the role of a Holocaust survivor and then asking the question to forgive or not to forgive, I just imagine an old man shaking his head and saying, each man must do that for himself. And it would be, a, I think, a, that's a conversation that the movie is not interested in having because it's a conversation that comes after the conversation the movie is interested in having, which has to do with acknowledging the truth of what happened. Once you've acknowledged the truth of what happened, then you can move on to, do I forgive? Do I refuse to forgive? Et cetera, et cetera. Does that make sense? It does, but it also, I feel, is complicated on both in both films, but certainly more so in Vertigo, where someone actually dies as a result of the truth being revealed. Now, granted, it was uh, maybe she was afraid and thought she'd seen a ghost, and it was a heightened emotional state. But you could sort of read it as actually it's the truth that killed the person. So it, it, it had this double effect that really pulled Scotty in two directions. Uh, in one direction, it actually pulled him uh, towards loving the actual person who was in front of him. But it also pulled her in the direction of uh, a panicked uh, actual suicide that uh, destroyed any possibility for the survival or a future with those two characters. And I think at that second point, it's the same with um, Phoenix, which is wherever Nelly got to in that final scene for herself, it destroyed the possibility of that relationship surviving permanently. And maybe for him too, but I'm more interested in her psychology than his at that point. Um, but there's something interesting there, right? With the truth is both the thing that helps you move on, as you said, and maybe get into, now I get to decide whether I forgive or not. But it also has a destructive element, um, even if that destruction is maybe ultimately the ashes from which you emerge whole from again, if that makes sense. I don't know how Scotty emerges from his, from the destruction of, Kim well, back, but yeah, the 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 final, yeah. the very final scene of the movie would seem to suggest that he does not. His, I mean, I I don't know that the separations in the movie are analogous. Scotty's uh, separation, final separation from Madeline at the end of Vertigo is self-imposed. If he had not been obsessed with making this woman into what he thought the other woman was if he had been able to actually see what was in front of him 
he would have found a woman who was real and who loved him that he would have been able to build a relationship with the like she yes she goes along with the scheme she's a single woman living in the city and she does this for money she does it cuz she's pressured by a man those to me are very understandable sins like and then she apologizes and that okay that's that's it like she she is not an evil person she got caught up in something bigger than her she made some bad decisions for understandable reasons and she apologized. She has done her part to get herself out of this trap that the two of them have created for themselves. Um, and then, you know, what what kills her is ultimately a deus ex machina because the movie, I think, for various emotional, psychological reasons, needs to end on an incredibly bleak note. But it's ultimately all Scotty's doing. He has created this, this um, trap for himself. Whereas the separation at the end of Phoenix, I think, happens because actually because they they were not willing to trap themselves. Like Nellie eventually figured out the truth, and Johnny. Not that this is to his credit, but Johnny refuses tacitly Nellie's offer to live in the lie. Right? I mean, he chooses a different lie, but um. Is I, so maybe the question that I'm getting to is what's going on with Johnny when they're on the bicycle and she gives him a get-out-of-jail-free card and he doesn't refuse it, but he doesn't pick it up. Yeah, I think that the for me, again, like where I was willing to suspend disbelief with Petzold's film with Phoenix, I, I also was – I thought he did a good job of continuously – uh, inviting the viewer to guess at how much Johnny really knows just by reading his facial expressions at different points. Like the first time he actually sets eyes on Nelly, you kind of do wonder like, wait, this is almost a look of recognition. There's a scene when he comes down the stairs after he's given um, who he's pretending not to be Nelly. I'm going to argue that there's an unconscious awareness that, that he knows. Um, when he comes, opens the door and she's wearing that dress with the makeup and she's dyed her hair and really gotten pretty damn close to what she looked like before everything. Uh, and he, his look is one of, of clear recognition. Like I read it as like he knows he's looking at actual Nelly and then he immediately follows it up with it's all wrong. You know, your makeup's fucked up, your dress is fucked up. And that to me is his way of protecting himself from the pain of actually having to be face to face with real Nelly. And yet, right. Uh, I, I just want to go back to your vertigo point. Like obviously Scotty did not survive a extermination camp. Right. But if you remember, like this destroyed him, like he lost a fellow police officer. Actually, it's a little ambiguous. It seems like the guy slipped and then he turned it into my vertigo caused him to die but it becomes a real psychological hangup. When the love of his life dies, he winds up essentially in a mental asylum for a, a year uh, in movie time, uh, like a inanimate object practically. He's catatonic. So this destroyed him. This destroys uh, Scotty psychologically. And so I wouldn't be so quick to let Madeline off the hook, even though she was the one that was approached, not the mastermind, right? Just a in terms of how much damage this wrought on uh, the person of Scotty, the characters of Scotty. But 
Here's another piece, man, that I think ties them together. Both are interested in the real versus the simulated. So Scotty is so obsessed, as you put it, with his image of Madeline that he fails to realize Madeline is in fact in front of him. And then you're confronted with the, again, delicious and and agonizing reality that he's somehow more attracted to, pathologically committed to a simulation than the real thing. I wonder if there's an equivalent or a sort of analogous exploration of wanting the simulation over the real thing playing out in Phoenix. Yes. Well, and I think that this goes again back to the ambiguity of the ending because Nellie does spend much of the film wanting the simulation of Johnny. Of Johnny, right? And she's she's totally willing to enter into this grotesque simulation where she's living with him, but they're not man and wife, and she's going by another name, even though she desperately wants to be recognized as herself, and so on and so forth. Then in the end, she leans into the simulation, right? She she embraces the role that everyone in that room wants her to play. And in so doing, it isolates her. She isolates herself. That's that's I this is where I come back to the idea that this may be a very bleak ending, but a very truthful one because the simulation should break her, right? Or it should isolate her. Like she shouldn't she can't be back with these people, right? Like there is a point, I guess, if you were a German, a non-Jewish non-discriminated against German in Germany during World War II, there was a point at which there really wasn't anything you could do, right? Like there was a point at which if you started resisting, you were just going to end up in the ovens with everybody else. So it may be that not everyone in that room is, and this is a big maybe, but it is a, it is a possibility that not everyone in that room is morally culpable for her victimization but all of them welcome her back with the expectation that life will simply somehow resume as before nobody seems particularly interested in what she endured nobody seems to wonder if maybe she wouldn't want this life back they're all clearly in denial and they are all morally beneath her at that point she should not want to be a part of that group anymore so the simulation shouldn't work for her and it doesn't if that makes sense it does and that's why i think there is still there are still inflections of hope in the gloominess of the isolation that you're describing from snapping to the fact that living within the simulation is untenable um, smashing yourself back into the box of old Nelly, even if you look more or less how you looked and you've regained your ability to sing, is untenable within this context. You know that there's no survival in the simulation. There's the possibility of survival beyond it. 
And so that's where I feel some hope still, in spite of in that moment, the profound isolation she must have felt. Uh, there's no surviving if you don't get out of it. And there's at least the sliver of a chance of um, landing on your feet if you can extricate yourself from it. I may be coming around to your way of looking at this. I, I still have my reservations, but I am I'm certainly at the very least impressed by the deftness with which so much complexity is conveyed through such simple moments of filmmaking. And Zizek does a wonderful, like, I mean, I don't, I'm not a Lacan expert, nor am I a Freud expert, but he does a wonderful, as he would call it, Lacanian analysis of Hitchcock's films in general. And he definitely has very different ideas about what's going on between Scotty and Madeline. I think for reasons that we would also get without Lacan training, which is the situation is just so very different from the one presented to us in Phoenix even if these other commonalities uh, are there between the two films. He gets at, I think in so many words, the, the impossibility of actually getting what you most desire and therefore needing it to cease to exist in order to remain in the realm of fantasy, which sounds like a brilliant um, uh, Zizekian way of discussing maybe in, 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 in hyper-academic terms like the the pitfalls of of pornography <laughs> in the modern day and and potentially or arguably the damage that's wrought on uh, on humans inability to connect with flesh and blood human beings um, because of the way that we have given ourselves over to these virtual fantasies um, anyway that's its own can of worms I just wanted to make clear that for all that is worth um, comparing and contrasting between these two films, there is a point at which uh, you have to sort of treat them uh, as their own works of art that are getting at different things. Yeah, and ultimately Vertigo is not about, I mean, it's volumes of ink have been spilled about that movie and the male gaze and the sexual power dynamics and everything. Ultimately, it's a movie about two people, right? One of whom is deeply fucked up, whereas ultimately Phoenix is about something much, much larger than that. And I, I think I do, after only having been introduced to Phoenix by you recently and having known Vertigo for a long time, I think I do find Vertigo the more haunting of the two films, even though its themes are are arguably insignificant beside the themes of Phoenix. But um, Phoenix is a fascinating movie. It's definitely one I would be willing to revisit at some point. And if anybody out there somehow is still listening to us at the 90-minute mark and has not seen this movie, uh, you should go see it. Also, just a tip to Scotty, if we could go back in time and shake him a little bit, Hey man, whether she threw herself in the San Francisco Bay because she's being paid to do it or because she's actually disturbed and thinks that she's possessed by a ghost, don't date this person. That's a red flag. That's well, a red flag. Well, so that makes me think maybe I'll close with this. I, I want to tell this story on the podcast. You and I were in San Francisco together one time. We were in, uh, we were walking down the street in, 
a neighborhood that has a lot of signs. I think it's North Beach, but it has a lot of signs identifying it as Chinatown because the historical Chinatown was there. And we were on a crowded street and your phone rang. It was your friend calling you and you answered your phone and listened for a moment. You said, no, man, we're in San Fran in Chinatown. Yeah, all right, I'll call you later. And then you hung up your phone. And this woman was walking beside us and she sped up so she could pass us. And as she passed us, she spat out at you. We don't say Chinatown and we don't say San Fran. And then she speed walked around the corner and disappeared from sight. And this was, God, six or seven years ago now. And I've been absolutely fascinated by that woman ever since. And I think the moral of vertigo may be just don't date people who live in San Francisco. Well, it's funny you say that because I actually have been haunted by that woman and her sonorous voice ever since. And if she's listening now, I just want you to know I love you. Favorite brand.